Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Uh, my name is David Gilbert and I am CEO of the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission and a proud City Club member. This forum today is sponsored by KeyBank and part of the Sports Commission's Velocity Initiative to support and enhance Cleveland's hosting of Major League Baseball All-Star Game, NFL Draft, NBA All-Star Game, and NCAA Women's Final Four, including a five-year uh, uh, series of City Club forums focused on barrier breaking in sports. Today is National Coming Out Day. It is my honor to commemorate this day by introducing today's speaker, who will share his very personal experiences at the intersection of professional sports and his identity. He is a Vice President, Special Assistant to the Commissioner, and Ambassador for Inclusion for Major League Baseball, Mr. Billy Bean. Mr. Bean played for the Detroit Tigers, LA Dodgers, San Diego Padres between 1987 and 1995. All that time, he hid his identity as a gay man from his family, his teammates, and all of Major League Baseball. Unable to reconcile his two identities in the hyper-masculine world of professional sports, he retired from the sport at age 31. In 1999, Mr. Bean came out to the world, making him the first Major League Baseball player to discuss his sexuality publicly to this extent. <clears throat> his story was widely covered by the media and fans across the country, prompting the creation of his best-selling 2003 memoir, Going the Other Way. In 2014, Mr. Bean returned to Major League Baseball when he was appointed as the league's first ambassador for inclusion by then-Commissioner Bud Selig. With this position, he had access to the front line of Major League Baseball, a seat that has allowed him to work towards achieving a league-wide culture of acceptance. And you'll hear more about that today. Mr. Bean holds a degree from Loyola Marymount University, where he was named an All-American outfielder twice after achieving valedictorian at his Santa Ana High School. He'll be in conversation with WKYC anchor and managing editor Russ Mitchell. Mr. Mr. Mitchell joined WKYC in 2012 after serving as anchor of the CBS Evening News, Weekend Editions, and the early show on Saturday. As a St. Louis native, Mr. Mitchell began his journalism career at the age of 17, earning his degree from the University of Missouri, and has reported on prominent international issues including 9-11 and Osama bin Laden's 2011 capture and death. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming Billy Bean and Russ Mitchell. Billy, good afternoon, and welcome back to Cleveland. Uh, thank you very much. It's a, a real humbling uh, honor and privilege to be here. The history of the building uh, uh, is not lost upon me, so I Excellent. hope that we can make everyone uh, enjoy today's event. Thanks again, for coming. And again, thank you very much for coming today. Let's establish right off the bat, you are not the general manager of the Oakland A's. I am A's. not. I am not. Okay. All right. What? I'm not paid as well either. Well, <laughs> in your current role right now, how would you explain your job? What do you do? 
Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, when I was brought back to baseball after a long time, there, there was no definition for the job because there had never been an ambassador for inclusion before. Uh, baseball was, um, wanted to lead the way in expanding its workplace protections and by adding sexual orientation into those uh, regulations and policies. And um, I was tasked with a job without a definition. And it wasn't until uh, I was uh, directed to speak to the general managers of baseball uh, their annual meetings every year uh, by my boss, Dan Halem, who's the deputy commissioner of MLB, that uh, it started to take shape. And so uh, I was, first of all, in 150 year history of Major League Baseball, there's only two players who have ever publicly disclosed that they were gay that played in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. And we just had our, I think, our 20th, 20,000th player uh, play a day in the majors. So two out of 20,000 tells you yeah. the culture in sports mm -hmm. is, uh, mm -hmm. is not the easiest uh, layer to uh, crack. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> being brought back to baseball uh, over the years, what, what has happened is that by sharing a little bit about my life experience um, and baseball being ready to, uh, uh, and with great intentions to get better mm -hmm. off the field, uh, my job has moved more towards uh, overseeing education programming. I started a bullying prevention program. Um, and really, because of the, uh, the scale of our great sport um, and my part being a part of the LGBTQ uh, uh, plus community, um, the visibility uh, has just continued to increase because of, of higher expectations by my community. Um, and, and a, a better understanding by our allies and those that uh, understand uh, how important diversity is in, uh, in our conversations in all of our communities. I want to come back to that, obviously, but take me back to the late 80s, you know, mid-90s. How would you describe homophobia in Major League Baseball and intolerance in locker rooms, among club owners, uh, among players? Well, it, it started, first of all, there was zero education or messaging. Uh, yeah. There was one sign on the door in the clubhouse and that said, don't gamble on the game, you know, basically. <laughs> um, and that was taken, you know, very, very seriously. But the culture, uh, the old, you know, what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse, that sort of permeated into, uh, you know, what is, what is socially acceptable in those environments? And if you want to be part of, you know, Major League Ball Club, and in those days, players didn't move around. So you had like a hierarchy of veterans that it was not the friendliest environment to get into. Mm -hmm. So I think in a, in a way, the peer pressure, um, you know, there used to be the old adage, you know, as soon as the wheels are up, the wedding ring goes off, you know, those kinds of things when in the day and age when we didn't have uh, accountability for where we were every you know single second of the day but all you had to do is listen to your manager in the dugout to know that there was not a friendly environment for uh, for gay men that is for sure and I grew up um, my father my, my mom was a single mother uh, and married um, my stepfather is still married uh, to this day but married him when I was very very young and I went from an only child to uh, the oldest of six and five boys and my father is from Wisconsin um, and, uh, you know, enlisted in the Marine Corps and was a cop for 25 years and to, I was the oldest of the five and, you know, he wanted us to be tough. Um, and the commentary that, uh, many of the people in this room might identify with about, uh, being a man and what, what that means. Um, and every word, I was so happy to have a father in my life that I love him and he's one of the great heroes of my life, but 
I just could not reconcile that that I could be that person. So I think that kept me from self-identifying and understanding. And there wasn't the type of uh, information out there yeah. for people mm -hmm. of our generation. Um, and so, I mean, every manager could say anything they want to an umpire or a fellow player, or if a fan was chirping a little too loud, they could turn around. And, mm -hmm. and nowadays, you know, our managers, Terry Francona, these guys are like stoic, man. They don't even raise an eyebrow to their players, you know? And uh, because we are held accountable in a different way. But back then, to your question, it was an environment that every single day I was reminded that, you know, and I, I tried to be, there was nothing I wanted more. I was in the big leagues before I was 22 years old. Yeah. I was recruited mm -hmm. to play football, you know, mm -hmm. in college, and I only, I happened to be good at sports, which I think was a very, another uh, peculiar um, fact about my personal mm -hmm. story, that for many people in my community, sports was a place where being unwelcome deterred them from continuing that you know that possibility or that journey and a lot of great mm -hmm. athletes that are blessed uh, walked away and sure. just did not uh, realize that part of their re life. in reading your book it's clear that you've loved sports from from day one I don't think there's a kid in America who at some point in their life does not want to be a professional uh, baseball player professional athlete of some of some type uh, take me back just to talk about your love of baseball April 25th 1987 <laughs> your yeah. first game in the show with the Tigers, in, in your heart, what do you remember about that game yeah. and what did it mean to you? Well, I had just got called up from the Toledo Mud Hens in yes. Ohio in uh, AAA. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Sparky Anderson is my manager, a Hall of Famer. I was playing on this incredibly, you know, veteran-laden team of the Detroit Tigers. Um, I didn't even have a car, and Jim Whalewander, a former big league player, was a friend of mine, close friend in Toledo, drove me up. Uh, we were totally late. I almost missed batting practice. I was batting leadoff in a day game uh, against the Kansas City Royals. Uh, George Brett and Bo Jackson were on the field in that game. And, and, you had uh, a good game, right? I, had, I got four hits and tied a major league record uh, <laughs> leading off, and uh, I helped us break like a five or six game losing streak. And, and you know, in those days, you got in the newspaper the next day. It wasn't mm -hmm. all over the, you know, the digital world. Um, and literally, my life changed you know, overnight where the expectation, um, I, I moved so swiftly through the minor leagues, and I was the youngest player on the team by far. Mm -hmm. I looked even half my age at the time then. Um, and, you know, to realize your dream, and, and there, there was no, the only way you could learn was by being there. Um, I remember, like, the fourth day uh, in the big leagues that we were in Seattle, and I came down the elevator and Sparky Anderson, it opened and Sparky Anderson looked at me, he's like, young man, go back up to your room and change clothes and dress like a professional. And I did not have a suit. Mm. Uh, my, no one told me that you had to wear a suit in those days on the road. And so right. you learn by making mistakes. And, and so there was the, that day itself was uh, a blur. People are chanting my name you know, on second base when I got my fourth hit. I didn't know that was a record. And, and, uh, I wished every day there was more days like that. I would have played a lot longer in the big leagues. But um, <laughs> well, you just, it clearly still makes you smile when you think about that. Yeah, you know, no. I, I think baseball, uh, for most people that are around the sport, uh, breaks your heart more often than um, it makes you smile because it is really hard to be good mm -hmm. at baseball. And there's so many, as you said, when we grew up, Every kid in America thought for a minute they were going to be Willie Mays. You know sure, that yeah. was, you know, that's what mm. the American national pastime was mm. all about. And there, all those options have changed, and there's more. But 
there was nothing. I, when I was introduced to baseball at seven, I could not believe my eyes when I saw those kids wearing those uniforms. Like mm. I, I had never seen a game on TV. And it just so happened that I was the fastest guy on the field. I could throw the ball the hardest, and I wasn't afraid to get hit by a pitch. And, mm. and so baseball kept picking me to be a part of it. And I never thought I would play past literally, you know. And then all of a sudden, you play in high school, and we won the state title in California on Dodger Stadium. And I stole Steve Garvey's locker and put my clothes <laughs> in there. And, and then, then I get recruited to college. And you know, that's all it would be. But then all of a sudden, the Detroit Tigers come calling, and, right. and, and the, I was drafted by the Yankees before them. So I think that there's these amazing moments where that one, I, I worked my whole life to get there, but it, it, a lot happened in one moment, and they can never take that away. And that's mm. what makes me smile, because it was absolute joy. Wow. There was nothing yeah. that I could have wanted more than that moment than what happened. And the, the hard part in life that we all learn is that there's always tomorrow mm -hmm. and you got to go back to work. Probably the first day you were on television, on national mm -hmm. TV, you right. know, your whole family's like, thank you God there was, thank you, God there was a tomorrow the first yeah, time. You made it. I told you're exactly right. As you're living this dream, as you're, yeah. you know, in this spot where you could never thought you would be, you, I know you've said that at the time you felt like you were alone in a crowded room. How, how would you describe that feeling? Well, I think that it takes so long, at least in those days, it took so long to, to feel like you were part of the party. And there was a, a whole thing that you're not a big leaguer until you, know, you make you know, uh, in the $100,000 a year or you make a million dollars right. a year. And there's so many uh, messages that remind you that um, this could go away quickly. And I think that the subconscious of me afraid of really exploring like my real self hiding that from every single person that i'd ever loved and loved me um, not understanding what that meant drew me to be more like a hyper you know more involved in baseball the better i could be the way i played i was reckless i dove into walls all the time and and uh was you know the jovial guy in the clubhouse and but that quiet voice, and I think for um, you know people of color or women, um, when they don't have that choice to keep that as a secret, and so when you know that you're being there or the potential that you're going to be uh, uh, sized up before anyone has ever said hello to you or mm -hmm. shaken your hand or because of the package that you arrive in. Um, it does isolate you in times. And I think that there was nothing at that time worse than the thought of being gay if you were a professional major league baseball player. Literally, there could have been nothing worse. I mean, being a thief would be, you know, excused. But this one, no. And there was no precedent for me to know that. Right. So I had created this dialogue in my head that I can never, ever, ever be that person. And as long as I just go to get two hits every day at the park, they won't tell me to leave, and I can live the life that I'm supposed to live that my parents have projected upon me as the, you know, the sort of golden child in the family. Yeah, as you had this double life. My, mom was, my mom was 35 when I made it to the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, she yeah. was a child, too. And right. so 
they were living vicariously through this total surprise. Mm. And for me to go from college right to the big leagues and have mm. a four-hit game and be, you know, ESPN and Chris Berman and give me a nickname and, you know, like, sure. how does that happen, you yeah. know, in, the, in, the, in those days? Well, as you're living this double life, how much of your day is consumed in fear that somebody's going to be found, somebody's going to find out? Well, it really started to escalate. Um, like I said, I, I got married very young. I was with my ex-wife for uh, eight years of my life, and, and uh, that was easily one of the most painful processes of me coming to know myself was to leave that relationship before we had children um, because I just, I knew something was wrong, but I, I couldn't quite figure that out until I met somebody. And then the dynamic of my life changed in that for the three years I was in San Diego, I was hiding a person in my life. And my, I had two brothers that went to college and high school in San Diego, and my parents lived 25 miles north of me on this side, and they wanted to go to every single game. And so I, I had to become this really sort of a cold person who didn't want my family around me and didn't want to open my home because someone was there that they could not meet. Yeah. And it really, um, I think the hardest part about accepting the dynamic of my life is that I struggled so badly with trying to hide a secret that I did not realize the talent that I was born with and I did not become a percentage of the player that I could have been and wanted to be but I was running from that uh, secret and it felt so dark and so ugly and it just uh, it affected me and I was I was limited I limited myself. I didn't give anybody a chance to fix that um, or tell me that that was not the truth. Um, and so that, that isolation is a, that's a bullseye word, you yeah. know, in this conversation because I just had made the decision that I would never share. Um, and I lost what could have been the best years of my, you know, physical life. That's what I was going to ask you. Was there ever a point? You, you talked about how these kind of things were not talked about in locker rooms, but you also talked about the other side of that as well. Was there ever a point in any of this where you said to yourself, I'm just going to come out and tell people who I am? You know, I, I wasn't equipped uh, with that. I, I can remember uh, my, I, what happened with, for those of you who don't know, my partner uh, that I was with in San Diego died the night before uh, as a very young man, the night before opening day of 1995 season. And um, he died in the morning, and I had a day game, the last day of spring training in Anaheim uh, to play the Los Angeles Angels. And my parents were at the game. You know, just reliving it is, is so hard to try to describe. Uh, and I, my, you know, Brad Osmus, who was my roommate at the time, um, he's like, what's, what's up? You know, what's going on? And there, you know, there was like this fleeting moment where, but at, at that moment I had three years of hiding a, a secret from my family. Um, and I thought if I, I felt like I was going to break down, you know, emotionally and, and I couldn't put myself in that situation. And so I just sort of left the clubhouse um, and you feel like you are not a part of something. Like, I felt like a fraud most of the time because I did not have um, that a relationship. Now that Sam, my partner's name was Sam, uh, when he left, he was really the only person that knew me 
fully and completely. And then I hadn't had the courage to advance those, uh, you know, a friendship or trust anybody. And so um, it was very painful in that time. And, and I, I used to have to, prior to him passing, I, I would have to try to eliminate all of the negativity in my mind. Um, but that year after he died, I would literally pull into the parking lot and try to flush out my emotions with uh, music or something mm. that would allow me to get it out so I could not be uh, such a mess, you know, because be, the, the players, and you all know when you work in a very close-knit environment, the minute something's off, people can tell. Sure. And baseball, yeah. you know, guys are uh, odd in that way. I mean, athletes, I would say that as long as they know, like, they got the bases covered, like, you know, you got your wife, you got your three kids, and you go to church here, you know, I don't need to talk to you every day. But if, if all of that stuff is changed or missing, you know, what are you doing if you don't have, if I don't see what's keeping you busy? And so, and I think that this, this type of uh, culture that still exists um, is what um, is the biggest uh, obstacle for athletes that mm. may want to uh, come out that, that are living a healthier relationship and do have uh, impactful uh, support a group of family mm. that I didn't allow my family to be. Um, but there is that desire to want, it's why you see all the big league players, um, they all have tattoos and they all have a big beard and they, you know, all the football players look the same and they, you know, the, they talk the same because it's such an amazing privilege to be in that space because it's so fleeting when your life is your physicality that putting something that might put that or putting something out there that might put that at risk doesn't make a lot of logical sense when you're 22 years old. You know, I don't know how many people were fully emotionally evolved at 22 in this room, but most people, and, and someone like me, you know, when you're an athlete, you know, like the expectation that Serena Williams is supposed to know about global political events when she's 15 because she's the best right. player in the tennis world, it's not fair to her. Sure. You know, she's yeah. great at one thing. You've got to give people a chance, and most athletes don't have the time to cultivate the other parts of their life until they're done playing their sport because it's that demanding. Let's go to 1999. You're out of the game and you're in a relationship, yep. uh, living in Florida, and the newspaper wants to do a story on your partner's restaurant. And yes. somewhere in the interview, <laughs> you say, or he says, correct me, that we're in a relationship. Right. And you know this is gonna be in the paper. You try to call the reporter back yeah. and say, hey, you know, don't put that in yet, but it's too late at that point. What, were you, what was going through your head? So, and you knew at any moment that the secret you've been living with was going to come out. Yeah, I'd been out of baseball for three years, and I had just told my family, like literally in the year, in, in the last year, um, and man, that was a whole different conversation. But um, <laughs> well, I mean, let me ask you that. I, I different kind of, how, how difficult was that? You know, them ha wondering what, for me to leave baseball, mm -hmm. th they expected the worst, that I, I must be mm -hmm. submerging into a life of drug abuse or, you know, there's just no rational explanation when that is heralded so highly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, but I think that when you put the words to it, there was an adjustment. And the fact that, you know, my parents uh, had all the same hopes and dreams for every one of the other children they had, but that envisioned me, uh, I was married and, 
um, to have children mm -hmm. and to play in the big leagues and make their lives, you know, them more interesting at the diner on the weekends and stuff, you know? It's like, you know, you change the dynamic. And, and I think that a lot of times um, when people um, do come out, uh, there's an expectation that there should be absolute 100%, you know, everyone on board, and this is a great day, and, you know, but it took me 32, three years to even begin to get out of the shame and, you know, self-loathing and uh, uh, internalized homophobia that I was educated by, by sure. my whole uh, yeah. upbringing, and so... I learned a valuable lesson at that time that it, it does take time. It didn't mean my parents didn't love me, but they were devastated. And so, um, but only because they had no understanding or idea what that really means. What, what does that mean? And then for me to leave um, a wonderful woman, a major league career, a beautiful home in San Diego, and be in Miami with a, a person who's older than me and is from Cuba and has a restaurant, like, that's like a weird 180, you know what I mean? So, you know, all credit to them for not, uh, you know. Um, but, uh, but so to, to, to your question with the, the reporter, the reporter uh, happened to be part of the LGBT community. Her name is Lydia Martin, and she's still a working reporter in Miami. And she knew that there was a story under this, right. you know, yeah. silly little yeah. restaurant, uh, you know, notification. And... Uh, mm. And I thought I was out of baseball long enough, and I, I just honestly felt so invisible by that time. I never told anybody. I, I just went about my business. I had really no plan B after baseball, and, and so we got into the restaurant. My ex at the time had this amazing life experience, uh, in, uh, professional experience restaurant. And um, what was supposed to be a story about a, a, a restaurant on Lincoln Road in Miami Beach uh, turned into uh, Billy Bean on the front page of the Miami Herald. And then subsequently, the next week, Robert Lipsight of the New York Times on the front page of the Sunday edition of the New York Times, um, above the fold, Right. for those of yeah. you who remember what that means. Yeah. So yeah. this was like, deal. this was, I could not believe that everyone was making such a big deal about it. And as a real athlete does, all I could think about was my crappy lifetime batting average that everybody was going to like give me a hard time about you know and it was like you know it was just a unveiling of something that felt so uh, I felt self-conscious in a way that uh, and I made some really really uh, horrific decisions trying to cover up my secret and one of the the most disappointing things that I've ever done in my life is I did not go to my partner's funeral because I had a game that day and that is that's that's a rough one to forgive yourself for, and it, even all these years later, is hard to imagine that I felt so worthless. If you can imagine your spouse or something, that's how much I love my partner at the time, you know. And it just, you know, I was living in a a place where I was just not connected to the world, and uh, and I thought that story would unveil all of those things. So I said, please don't, don't put me in the story. I didn't know that they could pull pictures off the Associated Press for me playing sure. for a hundred years, you know, and they just put it in there. There was not a lot of context uh, in the first uh, uh, iteration of the story because I didn't say very much except sure. You know, I didn't have a plan for it or I wasn't trying to market myself. <laughs> I was trying to hide from the truth. And um, it wasn't until 
uh, I was introduced to uh, many, many members of the LGBTQ community at the time that I began to understand that we all have a place in this world. And I didn't know how uh, the potential of being a role model in this space for young uh, uh, individuals identifying as male in the community who love sports. And that my, the, you know, the privilege that I had to play in Major League Baseball for six years, how that could be impactful mm -hmm. and how we could intersect stories and then I needed to learn so much and I was I was fortunate to get that opportunity and over time um, it put me in a position to be able to um, be a communicator sure. in this space. Was there a sense of relief in, in some ways after that article came out and after you started talking about it? Um, I think it, it took a little time. Mm -hmm. I remember like people like Diane Sawyer and you know Katie Couric calling me directly on my phone and asking That's if they can speak deal. to me. Yeah, <laughs> in those days I'm like, they don't how, how is this happening? <laughs> right. They knew to get uh, the story, yeah. and I'm like, you know, Diane Sawyer's like, my name is uh, Diane Sawyer, and I'm a television reporter that works for <laughs> ABC. <laughs> I'm like, really? You know? And um, and I had just seen her uh, work with uh, Ellen DeGeneres, mm -hmm. and then. Really, the irony, the great irony, is that um, she had done a story about Matthew Shepard and uh, Judy and Dennis Shepard, who are wonderfully dear friends of mine in this life. But the great intersection of my life, I know we're short on time, is that I was asked by uh, the executive director of the Human Rights Campaign, Elizabeth Birch, many years ago to come to DC. And she made, she forced me to sit at a table just like this, and she sat me next to Judy Shepard. And, it was, it was another one of the great low moments of my self-esteem where I felt like such a coward. Um, and this amazing woman who was thrust into a civil rights uh, position because her son was murdered by two kids that looked exactly like him from the same city in Laramie, Wyoming in 1998. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, she said something, she said that, you know, Matthew would, would have been so excited to meet a hero like you. Wow. And I mean, she might as well just punch me right in the face because I was like, I was a major league baseball player who didn't even have the courage to tell my parents what was bothering me. And here's a kid who was brave enough to be out at, uh, you know, 5'3", 110 pounds in Laramie, Wyoming, carrying his backpack down the halls, you know, as his best self. You know, and what makes a hero? You know, that's a hero to be brave enough to say, you know what? I don't care if you don't mm. accept me, this is who I am. And so that was the day like my life changed and it allowed me to um, stop being a liar, basically, I think, and just not uh, pretending I was something I wasn't and understanding that there is an opportunity that every one of us have to be impactful and be an influencer, um, even if it's only at your dinner table mm. and the people that look up to you and love you by the way that you uh, foster an, an environment or an energy of love and acceptance around you. It doesn't mean that you have to be like that or be best friends or, mm -hmm. but, um, and the world has shifted a lot since sure. way back in those days. Well, I was going to ask you, we want to go to questions in just a second, but let me ask you, it's kind of sum this part up right here. What would you say to a player who is in a major league locker room right now who is going through the same thing that you went through 30 years ago? I would first ask if, uh, if he had ever shared that with someone, you know, and if he's, in, in, because for a, an athlete in that situation, 
You don't have to stand behind a microphone to come out. You can do it one person at a time. And if he has the, uh, or she has the opportunity to um, tell one person that makes them feel not alone. And this is what happens in the bullying uh, prevention space or, or marginalized LGBTQ youth um, who are disproportionately targeted of, of violence. Sometimes they're one conversation away from not doing something that can't sure. be repaired. And, and it is profoundly uh, life-changing to be in the space of, of parents who have endured that, their child feeling hopeless or having pushed that child away and then seeing what happened because of religious conflicts in their minds or whatever. And, and uh, you know, everyone's journey is unique unto itself. But I would try to uh, tell that player that... Um, do not give up on yourself, you know what I mean? That there is a place, and I think there's so much positive information out there. There's a lot of nastiness in the world right now, too, but the difference is that they, they are smarter. We are all smarter, and I think that the decision now for an athlete, um, because of the messages that we're putting out there in baseball, I do feel like they know that their, their employer or their teammates, if it's about being a great teammate or great coworker, um, they're ready to be there in support for whatever makes you happy, to make you be the best teammate. But um, the isolation is what uh, f makes me the most afraid. And so I think I would just try to encourage them to trust one person at a time. And if that has to be me, I'll be that for you. But if, you, if that doesn't need to be me, that's not why I'm here. It's just to share that experience. And I think that um, for all of us, for people of color, um, I don't know what it feels like to be, walk into a room like you do, mm -hmm. but I am judged gay before baseball in every room that I walk into for the rest of my life because it's just what we still haven't got past that. My se you know, sexual orientation is more important than the, the, the entire nature of my character, but because we are so, that is so embedded that, wow, he's a baseball player, but, you know, gay is, you know, it puts me in a group of one. And so to be, there's, there's so much work to be done, but um, we have so much momentum that is getting us here. So. We thank you very much. It's a fascinating conversation. Yeah. It is time for a mid-break. I'm Russ Mitchell, WKYC anchor and managing editor, and today I'm talking with Billy Bean, not the general manager of the Oakland A's, but the vice president, special assistant to the commissioner, and ambassador for inclusion for Major League Baseball. We are about to begin our audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, city club members, guests, students, those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you would like to tweet a question, please tweet it to at the city club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today, our director of programming, Stephanie Jansky. There's Stephanie over there. And City Club intern, Remy Orisanya. Did I say that right, Remy? Thank you. Appreciate that. OK, the first question. Remy, anyone on your side? We're over on this side. Oh, on this side? OK. okay. <laughs> Go ahead, sir. Mr. Bean, this may be something of a reach. We've seen, just in the past week, a uh, member of the Houston Rockets uh, create quite a problem apparently for the Rockets and for the NBA 
by having the audacity to speak up for free speech and individual liberty. Just a couple of years ago, we saw football players throughout the NFL damned for the audacity to speak up for social justice. We haven't seen anything like that in Major League Baseball. And I'm wondering from your vantage point as a member of the official Major League Baseball, uh, what do you see happening today among players as to their uh, activity for social justice? And what is the reaction of Major League Baseball? Wow, okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Russ. No, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Why aren't baseball players yeah. doing this as other, other sports? Well, it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, first of all, I, I feel like we provide an environment for our players to socialize these types of conversations. Uh, we are at the ballpark literally 12 hours a day, every single day, eight and a half months a year. And it's different, the dynamic of uh, the other sports in that way. Uh, we're also the most diverse collection of athletes. Uh, we're all over the world. We speak, you know, we're Asia, South America, obviously every part of the United States, Canada, um, uh, Caribbean. Um, I think there's such a learning process to um, athletes having a voice. And, you know, the way business, the business of sports has changed that where you market athletes now as opposed to teams or leagues. Um, so what players say um, has tremendous impact, good or bad. And I think that the, the, the example you have of the general manager of the Houston Rockets, uh, who is uh, the unique nature of that organization with Yao Ming being probably the most famous Chinese athlete ever, um, uh, playing for that organization. And the you know business uh, influences everything. And, and I think the the realization that an athlete can, or a, a member that, uh, uh, of any organization that is representing something bigger than themselves, how that can uh, impact uh, the finances and the, the, you know, the money that is going around, and how small the world has become, globalized, you know, globalization with you know, the information that we all have. Um, it is, a, it is a slippery slope, and I think that uh, we all, every sport does understand that every athlete does have the right to voice what's important to them. And if we don't embrace that, then we are part of the problem and not part of the solution. So baseball encourages every one of our players to, uh, you know, to communicate that, uh, how they see fit. I think there's an interesting difference between the dynamic impact of NFL and NBA uh, where a young player right out of college becomes a household name and is making a, um, uh, becomes the face of a franchise potentially and how baseball there is this really slow ascension yeah. to mm -hmm. greatness and most of the players the majority of our players um, are not in a position to uh, put their career at risk, and I think it's a personal decision. Um, and I think that in the, in the example you gave, the general manager, for a moment, did not understand the potential of his platform. Mm -hmm. And the, the lesson is being learned for, uh, for everyone. But it is, it is something, and this is why 
the good intentions of our education programming, our bullying prevention. At Lee White, I started a program called Shred Hate. Um, why it has become a priority for uh, you know, the Paul Dolans of, the, of our league, the owners, um, because they, we all know now that one person represents our brand and what we stand for. And our values do matter to people. And so I think that's where we want to live um, by that trajectory into the place where um, we want people to be proud of, of uh, what our values are that come to our games. Got a question on this side, Remy? Hello, my name is. Oh, are you, you yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, my name is Mario Clopton Zimler. Uh, I'm a teacher at Shaker Heights High School, um, and uh, also here with my husband, and um, also people from the uh, Stonewall Sports, our organization here, LGBTQ Sports League. Um, in the time that this league has existed in Cleveland, um, I have seen from the first couple people who were our founders who came to the center and had this idea of bringing LGBTQ people and our allies together in sports. Um, I've seen what's happened in our community. It's grown expansively and I know that people have been able to come out to their families and have been able to really enjoy the life experience with their partners or whoever they want to hang with through organizations like Stonewall Cleveland um, and Stonewall Sports uh, nationally. My question is, do you think that um, organizations like Stonewall or other things that you might have seen in your work as a um, inclusion a commissioner um, would be beneficial um, that specifically the major leagues or the professional leagues could adopt to get the visibility out there? And last thing, I want to let you know, like as a person who would go to baseball games with my grandfather and like take all the notes of what's happening in every inning uh, and wanted to be Eddie Murray, like you are a golden child to me as a gay man. Thank so you. happy coming out day. <laughs> well, I, uh, I was fortunate to be a teammate of Eddie Murray in Los Angeles in 1989, 90. He is uh, a Hall of Famer in every way. Um, well, I think... It, I think what you just shared is a perfect example of what I did not understand when my story came out, is how valuable you are as a role model by the images that you two are representing uh, for the people that look up to you. And a lot of times those are people that are younger than you. And what your image did not exist when I was a baseball player because I would have been totally down to see two guys married like just and not like just going about their lives and playing, you know, whatever sport on the weekends with the, a group of people in a safe space. Like that, that, there's no way that we can undervalue how important that is. So what you're, you're changing the game every single day. And so the answer to your question is yes. That, that is how I would introduce that to our players and say, you know, if you, if somehow, if we could intersect one of those players coming across and visiting that facility and they have a, a brother like me or a cousin or, you know, a child, who knows, you know, you start to find things that we have in common and then you pave these roads that, the, 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 you know, the people coming behind us, they just rolling right down it. You know, they're not feeling any stress or the sadness that or, you know, the, what the pioneers that came before me who were fighting to live, forget civil rights. They just didn't want to die. And they were victims of a government that would not even address what was killing them. So we, are, we, we have to build off of the life experiences behind us. And that just, that just makes me so happy because 
Sports is comfortable for people to witness change. You know, like racism did not stop when Jackie Robinson ran onto the field on April 15th, 1947. It, it was like kicking a hornet's nest. It made people really uncomfortable to think, wow, now all these, the world's greatest athletes are going to be part of baseball, and how many of my jobs are going to be? You know, the players didn't like it. They were afraid. They were afraid for their own personal well-being. So change is uncomfortable, but there are moments that are galvanizing, and it'd be like you know, a healing positive space where people are doing something that is everyone can relate to in one way or another. They might not get it all exactly the same time, but that's how it changes. Stephanie, question over there. Hello. <clears throat> Hello, James Tusach, Merrill Lynch Bank of America. Huge community advocate for just opportunities and equality. When are we going to see in Major League Baseball, we have Jackie Robinson Day. I have the privilege of explaining that, who Larry Doby is when we walk into Cleveland, Frank Robinson. When are we going to have Billy Bean Day? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I am not, I don't deserve to be in that sentence with those other players. Uh, I, I have to say, though, that, um, you know, it should be Glenn Burke Day is what it should be, not, not me. Um, and, uh, and Glenn's story is compelling. Um, and he was brave, and he was raised by a family. Glenn Berg is the first player to come out. Played in the 70s for the Dodgers and the Oakland A's. African-American, could have been a three-sport major league athlete. Uh, I remember being on a bus uh, in Venezuela uh, in winter ball um, with a bunch of Dodger minor leaguers. Um, and um, one guy who was trying to hang on, a pitcher, was down there trying to resurrect his career, he said one day, I played with two of the greatest players that ever lived, it, uh, and the legendary Dodgers have, a, have had, you know, lauded for their talent in the minor leagues for years and years and years. But Pedro Guerrero and Glenn Burke were the two names he said that he got to see play. He said these guys were in a different level, and and so um, if there was ever to be something like that, uh, and Glenn was pushed out of baseball because he was not afraid to be himself. I am very close with his sister, Lutha Davis, um, and uh, she was on stage with me when Pres I mean, uh, Commissioner Selig announced uh, my uh, return to baseball, and she said that, you know, Glenn was just Glenn, and he, was, he knew what he was when he was a young kid, and he was, he was defiant about it, and uh, he was so far ahead of his time. So, um, you know, my dream for... Uh, you know, there, there's nothing more glorious than the example of how great Jackie Robinson was or Frank Robinson being the first African-American manager and, you know, Triple Crown winner and MVP in both leagues. And, um, you know, I've, I've had the honor of sitting next to Hank Aaron for a few innings during an All-Star game. Um, none of that is lost upon me. Um, so I hope that if we ever have an athlete who's w ready and willing that they have enough uh, numbers on the back of their baseball card that they... Um, that fans will give them a, a chance to uh, really navigate to an area that is, you know, unprecedented. I, I, it's like you cannot quantify how great of a baseball player Jackie Robinson was to play under that level mm. of stress. Yeah. It is impossible to understand in my limited mind. Like sure. it just yeah. the expectations of the African American community for him to get a hit every single time up to make up for the injustice that was taking place. There are all those athletes that never got a chance to play that would have been Hall of Famers, you know, and make baseball the truly greatest game when everyone's invited to the party. So, you have a question over there? 
Giovanni Santiago. I'm the Northeast Ohio organizer with Equality Ohio um, and also the founder of Meta Center Inc., which is a nonprofit geared towards assisting transgender and gender nonconforming youth. Um, my question for you, sir, is about the um, trans and gay athletes that are students that are facing a lot of discrimination, not only from their coaches and their principals, but from the um, athletic departments, even right here in the state of Ohio. So how do you respond when people ask you the importance of the protections for LGBTQ youth in sports? So we were, thank you for the question. Uh, we were confronted with that in one of our uh, RBI softball uh, World Series games a couple years ago. Um, and I was so proud of baseball. This was a, at the like 11 and 12 age uh, uh, level um, where a young trans uh, citizen uh, was part of the softball team. And we uh, got all the coaches together and we you know, made a determined effort, and this is to the credit of David James and Tony Regan of MLB, that they wanted to make sure that all of the coaches uh, were on board and understanding that we had a chance to be a positive uh, voice in this space. And this was, I think, three years ago. Um, and the conversation is expanding and growing uh, in, in expectation and in frustration at the same time, right? because the visibility of trans people of color um, as uh, disproportionate targets of violence is a real fact, and it is unfortunate. And the, the, this is, again, part of the incredible dynamic of the LGBT community, how diverse we are, and, and we come in every size, shape, color, gender, identity, or expression. So for me, um, we have to walk the talk, and we have to when you know sports are sometimes last to the conversation because until they are confronted with an athlete in that space um it's easy to say yeah we support it but you know mm -hmm. it's no it's not affecting our day-to-day -day op you know so that was an, an opportunity that i thought that we um and sharon rob robinson the um daughter of the great jackie robinson who is an icon in our sport do you guys know that rachel robinson is still alive yeah, she was, she was here in the All-Star game. She was here for the All-Star game. Literally the most amazing yes. person on the mm -hmm. planet. She's mm -hmm. 95, I think, now, and mm -hmm. looks like she did. She's <laughs> 47, yeah, basically. Yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. But <laughs> it's like she's, not, she's like uh, outer space or something. I don't know. But um, mm -hmm. anyways, uh, we have an essay contest, uh, Breaking Barriers, um, and this athlete wrote about their experience and uh, was the essay, Sharon Robinson selected that as the essay winner. So we, it was a learning uh, opportunity for our sport. Stephanie, question there? A question from Twitter. What was the response outreach like, if any, from former teammates when you came out? Um, that was interesting because, uh, as you know, as a journalist, uh, the New York Times, uh, personally, I was blown away, and uh, MLB made a documentary about uh, my story, and they interviewed tons of players that knew me. And I, again, it was just—I I, was—I couldn't believe uh, even some managers that I played for. You know, the, the idea of like if Billy should have just trusted to talk about it, we would have. Um, but um, the story included a bunch. You know, baseball uh, is unique in that we have a the scale is so large um, that, and we do have a very large uh, presence of people who are extremely conservative and religious, mm -hmm. and so that uh, historically, especially 20 years ago, um, is a lightning rod for drama um, when it t uh, when you talk about LGBT inclusion and um, and faith. So. Uh, they put in a few people that uh, the only quotes they could get were people that had never played 
with or against me. Um, that they and they didn't put it about me, but they they just said that they would never be able to play with someone um, because th I don't know. They just thought that that person would. You don't get to the big leagues by being something other than a baseball player, you know. Mm -hmm. And and to assume that uh, an athlete based on their sexual orientation would be unable to focus on their sport because their sex drive supersedes any desire to succeed in the world is like, <laughs> it's like, you know, prehistoric uh, mentality. It's like, it's like the idea that, um, you know, uh, the old, you know, that a woman, you know, unable to keep her, you know, because we're of opposite sex that we would constantly be attracted to each other and we would not be able to coexist. It's basically the same mm -hmm. antiquated argument. So, but I was pleasantly surprised uh, and um, it made me even more disappointed in my choice to not share that at the time. But um, mm -hmm. uh, that's how it went. Not a lot of time left, but I want to ask you this before we get to probably our last question. You say in the book there were some folks who were very silent. We didn't say a word, and folks, did, you were close to it one time. Sparky Anderson, for one. Tommy Lasorda, <laughs> your agent, yeah. said nothing. Yeah. Did that hurt? Um, I didn't have any expectation of uh, my former managers because baseball, um, players move around quite a bit. Um, and so I was disappointed. I had a longstanding relationship with my agent. I, I don't think there was malice. I, I, I think that... It was part of that community that just did not resonate that there, you know, and I don't know if it because it had been a couple of years. I had, I had the opportunity. Uh, it's the, the irony of the situation is uh, the show Arliss that was on right. HBO was agent. emulated right. off my yeah. former mm -hmm. agent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in the office with my agent when... Um, they were doing like the preparation uh, for the show, and I actually was on that show, uh, and it was picked as one of their top seven or eight episodes, <laughs> and they were on years for seven years. It was about an agent. It was, uh, you know, uh, slapstick kind of comedy, yeah. mm -hmm. but about an athlete coming out, uh, a superstar pitcher uh, who fell in love with supposed someone that was uh, supposed to be like Elton John or something like that. But And the agent, Arliss, wanted my opinion as the only mm -hmm. living, you know. So... Uh, I thought there was great irony there, but th uh, that that situation has since been reconciled. But at the time, uh, I think I just was hoping maybe that that person could save me from myself, and I put an undue expectation there. I think my parents would have been able to facilitate that if I had trusted them, mm -hmm. but I think it was a, a, a reminder. And you work in a, a tough business too that. It's a privilege to be in it when we're working, and, and it will go on with or without us. And so baseball and professional sports is, uh, is not the warm and fuzziest place all the time. <laughs> and so it was, the world didn't stop spinning when I stepped out. And, and I think that hurt my feelings too, because I had never lived in a world where I wasn't hoping to go somewhere sure. or I was in sure. it. I'm Dan Maltrip, Chief Executive here at the City Club. Today we have been hearing from Billy Bean. He's Vice President, Special Assistant to the Commissioner, and Ambassador for Inclusion for Major League Baseball. He's been in conversation with Russ Mitchell, Anchor and Managing Editor at WKYC. Our forum is also sponsored by the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission and presented in partnership with Velocity, a community-wide initiative 
by, of the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission to maximize the community impact of hosting some of the most significant events in sports. We're grateful to David Gilbert and his team at the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission for their help in making our forum today possible. Mr. Bean is also here as part of our Authors in Conversation series, which is supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We thank all of the residents of Cuyahoga County for their generous support. We'd also like to thank KeyBank and the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission for generously providing a copy of Billy Bean's book, Going the Other Way, to everyone in attendance today. Our community partners for today's forum include Equality Ohio, the Plexus, the LGBT and Allied Chamber of Commerce, and the Human Rights Campaign Foundation. We thank all of you for your support and partnership. Lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Bank of America, the Center for Community Solutions, the LGBT Community Center of Greater Cleveland, and all of the guests of Velocity. Thank you all for being with us today. That brings us to the end of our program. Thank you, Mr. Bean and Mr. Mitchell. And special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes this program and all of our programs possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. Our forum is adjourned. Have a wonderful weekend. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.